the question is really how can we apply this technology to help counteract some of the negative aspects of centralization, where those who are in a position of power, how can we use this technology to prevent them from abusing it, but not necessarily to just prevent centralization altogether? I'm Tor Bear from Enigma, and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralize This, presented by Enigma. I'm Tor Bear, I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and on today's episode, I am talking with Alex Wern. Alex is the co-founder and CEO of Aurora, the creators of IDEX. IDEX is a hybrid token exchange that's built on Ethereum, combining decentralized elements such as self-custody with off-chain infrastructure that keeps IDEX fast, liquid, and a high-quality trading experience for users. As a result, IDEX is one of the most used applications that's built on Ethereum. IDEX's hybrid model could provide a blueprint for developers that are looking to actually achieve adoption for their products, but it's not without its drawbacks or its challenges. On this episode, Alex is going to talk with me about the difference between true decentralization and pragmatic decentralization, whether code should be law, why liquidity is the most essential element for any exchange, and what the impact of regulation might be on the nascent decentralization space. Alex is deeply knowledgeable about what he's building and the challenges that IDEX is facing, and his perspective is a really valuable look into what it might really take to drive meaningful adoption of decentralized applications at scale. I learned a lot from Alex, you will too, so without any further introduction, here is Alex Wern. Alex, thank you for joining me on this episode of Decentralize This. I'm thrilled to have you on, man. Thanks, Tor. It's great to be here. So we start every episode, same way, same question. Personally, professionally, who is Alex Wern? So I've been in the software space for a little over a decade now. Uh, spent time at the likes of Amazon, IBM, and Adobe. Uh, really focused on product and, and process design. So was never an engineer myself, probably found out a little bit too late. That would have been my, my good calling. I studied economics and, and uh, chemistry and, and kind of hard sciences in undergrad, um, but really kind of think like an engineer and really enjoyed product roles within those organizations, understanding what technology is capable of and how you can design a product that helps solve and address a, a particular need. Um, so I think I first found out about Bitcoin in 2012, um, saw kind of the information. Of course, a lot of it was focused around darknet markets, but this idea of an uncensorable currency really kind of caught my eye or just piqued my interest. You know, how does this thing work from a technology perspective? Um, I admittedly overlooked it a little bit. I got hung up on some of the aspects that it wasn't backed by any government because one of the things in my economics classes that you're taught is, you know, the value of a monetary kind of structure or a monetary policy is primarily tied to the government and the economy that is backing it. And without, in, in Bitcoin's case, there was no inherent issuer or economy behind it. And I kind of overlooked the fact that that's actually one of its biggest selling points. Uh, in addition to the attributes of being able to send it anywhere in the world with without getting someone's permission, is also this stateless component that actually makes it really fascinating to study 
um, from both not only a technology perspective, but also kind of game theory, political, all the other elements that go into it. Um, and then when when Ethereum was released, really got excited about the idea of programmatic assets. And that's when I kind of jumped into the space full time. Got it. I, I want to go back to something you said kind of right at the start there, because I was an economics major. So supposedly I'm an economist by training in some ways. I'm not an engineer by training, but I picked up coding you know, in, in a lot of former lives. what What's the difference between that mindset, like the mindset of somebody who's from the economics field where they're maybe more concerned with like incentive design and somebody who's from the engineering field where they're more concerned maybe about product design or infrastructure? Like wh why do you think that that's maybe more the way that your mind works? Yeah, and I guess I, I think they're both, they're similar disciplines in the sense that you're trying to understand, you know, how a system works in engineering, it's more the application and using these tools to construct new products or new systems. Um, I think one of the interesting things is econo economics is much less deterministic. It's very much um, looking for statistical significance, uh, trying to understand with broad strokes what's happening. It's really hard to run concrete experiments. Um, you know, it, it'd be great if we could just run two parallel versions of the U.S. economy with different monetary policies and see what happens in the in in terms of, you know, OK, some some economic crisis hits. What is the what should the Fed's response be? Mm -hmm. uh, but we don't have that luxury, whereas in the uh, kind of engineering space, you have that freedom to experiment and to tinker. And so I think cryptocurrency is, in my opinion, the most fascinating space today because it's that combination of building and creating using technology. But it very quickly butts up against all of these softer elements that really involve human psychology, um, human behavior, game theory, some of these things that are a lot harder to measure and kind of deterministically determine a, a certain outcome or result. Yeah, on this show, we've had engineers and we've had economists. You know, we have people who see this space very much as like, you know, code is law and that's why they love it. And then we have other people who are in this space thinking like, the code is a new asset class and it's an opportunity. And then there's other people who are more around like incentive system design. All of these people have to build together, right? They're all in the same room. Some of them are working on the same projects. And I just feel like they have very different lenses for coming at these same problems. Would you say that you possess both of those lenses equally or is there an aspect that you come at it from more or am I completely overlooking yet another lens that you might use more frequently when you think about decentralized technologies and systems? I think that's a great way of framing it. Um, I'd like to think I'm, I'm pretty balanced. I probably – uh, historically tended to think a little more along the systems and logic approach um, that works really well for excelling in in particular math and science where you know the goal is to find the right answer um, I actually was less of a fan of things like you know in particular English and creative writing things that I didn't have you know oh that's a yes or no answer it's kind of a, a fuzzier outcome um, but I think over time, especially as you start to work and realize that, you know, a lot of it you may do, you may have the best product or the best, um, you know, the best solution, but it's, it's, there's a lot of elements of convincing consumers to buy that product or, you know, how do you tap into consumer psychology to uh, get them to use your service? So, you know, as you grow older, I think you realize that the world certainly doesn't operate um, along those strict lines of uh, everything can be written in code. So, you know, I think the code is law was, 
uh, a very, uh, in my opinion, it was an, an overzealous kind of perspective early on. And I think the Dow is the best example of uh, CODA's law, maybe not being the best thing to adhere to. Um, obviously, referring to the the, the mid 2016 issue where right. everyone got excited by this idea of kind of crowdsourced venture capital. And then a bug in the code uh, created this debate of, well, is it the code that's that's flawed or should we go by what people's intentions were? That's a conversation that is unending, right? And it's not just in the blockchain space, right? But the whole point of law, you know, if you say code is law, to me, that's actually an oxymoron because law was designed to be sort of the, you're always dealing with something that's like ill-defined, right? That's why you have law. That's why you have contracts. That's why you have, you know, judges and juries and the like. And the idea of code becoming law you know, that code is supposed to be inflexible by nature. It's supposed to be deterministic. And that's not how law is supposed to work. I, I'm not sure. And, I, and I'm and i sure you're familiar, like Vitalik had that tweet where he was like, would he call smart contracts smart contracts? Do you think that like smart contracts are a good term for what they are? Or would you prefer to call them something else than contracts? I, I tend to agree that's um, been maybe a bit of a misnomer. Uh, our CTO calls them automated recourseless contracts, uh, meaning if they do what you want them to do, great, it's automated. Uh, but if it doesn't, there's no recourse. It's going to execute without any consideration to what the actual intention behind it was. There's no appeals process exactly, except for forking or you know certain blockchains that are trying to bring on-chain governance or you know some way for. Uh, you know, block producers to have an adjudication process, that sort of thing. Um, and I think to your point, you know, the idea that like code is law. Yeah, you could say code is a contract, but then what is the court equivalent, right? That's the reason that you have when a contract is written in such a way that maybe the two sides disagree or maybe one of the sides, maybe they agreed up front in principle, but now one of the sides is frustrated and sees a way to interpret that code, that contract, that attempts to get something out of the person on the other side, right? That's where you bring it to an individual or a system, a court system that has a judgment, uh, kind of the ability to to weigh in, hear the facts and come up with, you know, an attempt at a reasonable determination of what is quote unquote fair or right. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's interesting to try to see how much of it can we automate, but um, I'm not convinced that we'll entirely get rid of the need for human interpretation, at least uh, not in the near future. I think we're now getting into what I feel is going to be the meat of our conversation, because you're currently working on IDEX, which is a decentralized application, right? And and in your words, it's the, it's the number one decentralized application on Ethereum. Uh, and there's a few other decentralized applications on Ethereum, one of which, you know, is Augur, for example. And Augur is a prime example of what we're talking about in terms of, you know, how do you interpret code as law? You know, Augur is going through a thing right now where somebody posted an ambiguous market and somebody asked, you know, who's going to be in control of the House of Representatives on, you know, certain date in December. Uh, and technically... It wasn't the Democrats yet. They hadn't actually taken office. But the way that the intent of the question appeared to be was who's going to win the election? Who's going to receive the majority of House seats? And I, I mean, we're already seeing some of this stuff that you're talking about playing out. Like if you have a truly decentralized application, 
you need to have some sort of process for resolving them, those sorts of disputes. And if it's, you know, not up to a court of individuals, but it's up to maybe stakeholders within the, the system that you've created, what does that governance system look like? I mean, these are all the biggest questions that decentralized application designers are struggling with. What, what I want to ask you, we're going to focus on IDEX now for a bit. I wanted to ask, you know, how have you struggled with some of these same questions as you've been designing IDEX, as you've been looking to scale it? You know, I, I just, I want to understand how somebody who's building a decentralized application is grappling with all these issues about what does it mean to be truly decentralized? Yeah, so great question. I love the Augur example. Um, you know, I think that to me is a perfect example of how if you're going to have something that is, uh, in, in this case, you know, settled by a kind of a decentralized voting mechanism or it, it needs to be extremely precise in the way that in this case that the question or the market is written. You know, something like a sporting event is perfectly suited for this because you actually have humans that are determining, you know, if there's a, a call within the game that could go one way or the other, you already have a referee structure in place so that the event can resolve into something that is deterministic, who had more points when time ran out, right? Um, you know, that's a great example of something that uh, in the real world has judges or referees that help you get to an outcome that is black or white. Um, and you said, so you said a couple of interesting things, I think, uh, when talking, you know, kind of about IDEX and what we've created. So, um, first off, we've actually changed our language a little bit with how we talk about IDEX because of some of the trade-offs that we've decided to make in terms of how much do you leave to the blockchain and how much do you leave to off-chain infrastructure that we as a company are in control. Um, so we have actually adopted more often the term non-custodial or a hybrid decentralized exchange. You know, the, the, the primary component being that we use a smart contract to manage all of the fund custody, trade, and settlement. So that to us is kind of the fundamental thing that makes a DEX a decentralized is that fund custody piece. Um, the, there, there's then a question around interacting with that contract and how, I guess, kind of open and free form that interaction is. And it really kind of hinges around how much information do you put in the contract and how do people, how much can they do with that contract directly versus needing to go through an intermediary. And I'll give a couple of concrete examples of how we've looked at that at, at IDEX. And actually, uh, taken the position which leads to a better UX, but in this case, more centralization and control with, within our company. Yeah, I definitely um, want to hear about the trade-offs. Yeah. So one example that I think has been discussed fairly fairly widely, um, and a lot of people have a perspective, is the order books. So for every uh, for, for most cryptocurrency exchanges, you have the market maker is the individual who comes and shows up first. And maybe they want to buy or sell tokens. They will actually put an order out there in the general public. Uh, I'm willing to sell 10 Tor tokens for one Ether. And they now sign in the case of a decentralized exchange, they sign this transaction with their private key, uh, which is kind of them you know, attesting to the rest of the world that, hey, I'm willing to make this trade. And anyone else who comes and takes the other side of it. Uh, this trade will com complete automatically. Um, there's no need to send this cryptocurrency to a third party. Uh, it's going to be managed by the by the Ethereum blockchain itself. 
So that's kind of the fundamental piece of a decentralized exchange is you're able to, to sign these orders with your private key and you don't have to escrow with, for example, Coinbase or Binance in order for two parties to trade. So one of the questions then becomes, now that I have this order, how is it given over or made visible to everyone else out there who might want to take the other side of the trade? And there's a couple different options. You can either post it on the blockchain, so to speak. So you actually sign the transaction and submit it to the Ethereum network for mining, in which case that information is put into the contract and individuals can actually just read from the Ethereum blockchain what orders are available and, and fill directly against them. And that's, that's referred to as an on-chain order book. Um, so in that case, you actually don't need any sort of additional infrastructure. Um, I can just on my own computer using the publicly available Ethereum tools, create an order, submit it to the contract, someone else can do the same thing. And it's uh, you know much more decentralized in the sense that um, anyone can, can interact with it and they don't need a website or additional tooling um, outside of what's publicly open source available to do so. Um, most decentralized exchanges though have gone with an off-chain method. What that means is that the maker will approve a transaction, but instead of submitting it to the network for mining, it's actually stored off-chain. And only once the other the other participant, the market taker, wants to actually execute the trade, is it signed and sent to the network for processing. So some of the benefits here are that you reduce the amount of interactions with the network. So it's it's costly in terms of gas anytime you want to do instructions on the Ethereum network. So if you're having to mine your orders and, and put them on chain, then it costs money to actually put an order out there. Um, if you want to cancel it, it then costs additional funds to cancel that order. Um, whereas if you do it off chain, you're able to do it in such a way that um, you can forego that cost of creating the order. However, you now need an additional system to broadcast that order. So many of the 0x relayers have a website whereby when you look at the orders, what you're actually seeing are signed transactions from a maker that are off-chain that you, the taker, can countersign, meaning agree to the other side of the trade and broadcast to the network for mining. Yeah, I, I think for people listening, some, some of them are have never used a decentralized exchange. And I, I'm going to assume that some have never used any cryptocurrency exchange. But maybe let's say they're familiar with like an individual centralized traditional crypto exchange like a Binance or a Bittrex or something like that. So the main way in which IDEX differs in this case, and, and, and this is what your language now reflects, is this non-custodial nature. What is, so what, what do you think is like the primary benefit? Like what, what's the difference in the user experience? And do you think that that difference in user experience, given the trade-offs you've made, how can that lead to healthy growth for a decentralized exchange? I, I, do you see these centralized exchanges as your primary competition? So I think certainly we, we look at all crypto exchanges and, and eventually all financial trading platforms as sources of competition, right? Um, I think we are first focused on providing that primary benefit of a decentralized exchange, which is the non-custodial nature. And, we, and we've actually um, come to think of it as it's not that it's just non-custodial. And by that, we mean you don't have to give over your cryptocurrency to a third party in order to trade on that platform. Um, so to date, most people interact with IDEX using either a Ledger hardware wallet or using MetaMask, the software wallet uh, browser plugin. And the idea is that 
something like Coinbase or Binance, you have to, the first requirement of trading on their platform is actually choosing them as your custodian. It's just an inherent step in being able to access that pool of liquidity is the first thing you do is send them your cryptocurrency. Um, now, there could be many reasons that you don't want to choose them as your custodian. Maybe you're an, an, an individual who's interested in this notion of self-custody because you like the benefits that provides uh, that how, you know, that the nature of how cryptocurrency works. Um, or it could be that you are an institution that wants to self-custody because that's part of the value chain that you can capture and value that you can provide to your customers. Or maybe there's a requirement for uh, custody certification, like a qualified custodian, and those exchanges don't meet that requirement. Um, we also hear from some of the institutional players that they are only trading OTC because they have certain requirements uh, in terms of the kind of the counterparty risk. And trading on a platform such as Binance and Coinbase, um, it gives them pause for concern because of the risk of turning over their cryptocurrency into this kind of unknown black box. They'd rather trade against someone that they know and have uh, legal agreements with that they can fall back on in the event that something goes wrong. Um, so all of this goes away if you trade via a smart contract because then it's kind of an all or nothing thing. You never have this issue where you relinquish control of your cryptocurrency and don't get back what you're trying to trade on the other side. It makes total sense to me. Uh, I, I have a little more trading experience than, than most, I would say, who, who are listening. And like when, when I think about uh, trading, the first word that I'm always thinking of is liquidity. And in fact, when we had uh, Joey Krug on the show, he was our first guest. And uh, Joey Krug, for, for those who haven't listened to that episode, is one of the founders of Augur, now at Pantera. And we, we talked a lot about the meaning of liquidity to a platform like Augur. How do you think about liquidity – like first, how would you define liquidity for a platform like IDEX? And then secondly, how do you think about building this liquidity pool? Like how, for me, that's like the primary growth metric for some sort of financial platform like an exchange. How are you approaching that at IDEX? Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. We have one of our advisors. Um, he's a former Wall Street guy, um, was the head of the New York Mercantile Exchange for many years. And his thing is the top three things that an exchange needs are liquidity, liquidity, and liquidity. Uh, so it's, it's critically important in, in this space. Um, and I think that's actually what's driven a lot of our design decisions. So back to the off-chain, on-chain order book decision. Um, if market makers, one of the requirements is that market makers need to be able to quickly adjust bid-ask offers um, based on market movements. Uh, so if you're trading a token that's on IDEX as well as on Binance and the price changes on Binance, well, you want to be able to update your, your offers on IDEX to reflect the change in the market price. If your orders have been mined onto the blockchain, then you have two potential issues. One, you actually have to pay another transaction to cancel that order and then place a new one, both of which cost gas. And two, there's a latency component. So you actually have to wait for the network to confirm your transaction before it's actually officially canceled. So you could have a situation if the market moves quick enough, someone else could pay a higher gas price to front run your cancel transaction and actually get there before you're able to remove it from the order book. So having a UX that is amenable to market makers, which basically means the ability to add or remove to place or cancel orders immediately and without gas costs, we think is extremely critical 
to the success of a non-custodial platform and something that we've really been been focused on since day one. And if you think about you know, custodial versus non-custodial, that this isn't an issue for centralized exchanges because nothing's happening on the blockchain. You've already sent your cryptocurrency to them and you're just trading within their internal database. So all that can happen as fast as you know, their API updates and as fast as you can get information into their system. Um, it's really when you start to deal with the fact that the IDEX transactions actually settle after each trade. So how do you deal with the latency of the blockchain and not have it impact the UX for those who are trading on the platform? I'm hearing you describe this, and this is my gut feeling on it as well, as sort of the best of both worlds, having the non-custodial aspect as, again, for the user experience. It's much better than you know losing control of your assets while you're trying to you know still have the flexibility to use them as you desire. And then you also don't struggle with these issues of, as you said, like latency, uh, everything that's a complication with something uh, like a truly decentralized exchange would be where you're just interacting with the smart contract and everything is done on chain. Um, I think this is sort of what you were writing about to some extent when you guys published what you published on pragmatic decentralization. And my interpretation of the word pragmatic, I don't know if this was yours, but my my interpretation, my connotations with the word pragmatic is that it was a considered design choice that was engineered. And again, was it was it the engineering lens? Was it the economic lens? In this case, was it partly the legal lens? It hardly matters if it was a, you know, it, what matters is that it was a considered decision with the aim in mind of improving ultimately the user experience. But, you know, in reading that article, it seemed like there was also this goal of remaining compliant. And a theme that comes up on this podcast again and again is what does it really take to build and scale decentralized technologies? And I, I've talked to people like Luis uh, Quende from Aragon, where he thinks about building decentralized organizations and decentralized, decentralized systems as sort of like a parallel universe. I, I got the feeling reading some of your words that you don't think that you're building a parallel universe. You're trying to build something that is a bridge to the traditional financial world. Can you talk a little bit about like how you're thinking about remaining a part of you know the the legacy financial world? What's what's already been built while still enabling this cool future of, of more decentralized exchange and more more decentralized liquidity. So I think there's a, a couple uh, kind of elements to that question. So I think you're, you're absolutely right that, you know, when we say pragmatic, it was an intentional choice. And it was really kind of thinking about this 80-20 rule. And we looked at the capabilities of decentralized exchanges and the problems that they solve for customers. And you can kind of look at there's a couple different things, depending on how you design the decentralized exchange, there's a couple different properties you can offer. The primary one that we think is most important is this custody component. Do you have to give control of your cryptocurrency over to a third party in order to trade? Or can you remain in control throughout the entire process and use your own private key to make instructions or give instructions to, to trades? Um, there was that uh, we're recording this on the fourth. Yesterday was the proof of keys movement where people are encouraged to withdraw their Bitcoin from cryptocurrency exchanges. Uh, the idea being that if you're not in control of it, if you don't control the private keys, how can you be certain that it's there? Something like a de decentralized exchange, that's not an issue because you're in control throughout the entire process. 
Um, there's other things that you could also provide, though, in terms of uh, you know user benefits, such as censorship resistance. So something that is purely just a smart contract where everything's done on the blockchain, that is censorship resistance in the sense censorship resistant in the sense that no one individual or government agency can actually stop that smart contract from operating. However, we do think that one, it's at least in its current state from a technical perspective, way more difficult to use and much less uh, valuable to the majority of customers. Um, and two, that there's an element of if it's something that regulators don't approve of, if it's facilitating activity that uh, they're responsible for regulating, then they'll try to find some way to go after the contract creators or speak with those who are operating any business around it. You know, put pressure on those who have the ability to affect change or comply with their regulation uh, to, to, to make them do so. Um, there were some some interesting comments from the CFTC commissioner, I think a couple months ago at this point. Um, essentially, it seemed like referring to Augur, uh, saying this hypothetical predictions market that allows people to engage in unregistered derivatives or speculation on outcomes of events, aka derivatives, uh, that's something that they would want to regulate and they would want the creators to come speak to them before it, before, before deploying that on the network. Now, one, I think that Personally, that gives me pause for concern. I think uh, it's going to really slow down innovation if you have people having to, you know, before you deploy any code or deploy anything onto the Ethereum network, if you have to consult with the legal team to see, is this going to cause some issues? Um, there's also this interesting free speech argument. It's like can, you could publish the Augur code in a book. That's free speech. Uh, but if you put it on GitHub or if you then deploy it to the Ethereum network, is that crossing the line? Um you know, it, so it, there's it's definitely a messy area. But I think from our perspective, you know, we, we look at it from a couple of angles. So, you know, we are working to be compliant with the regulation that we think applies to our business. So there's a couple elements to that. One, it's unclear exactly which regulations do apply. Um, we actually don't touch anyone's funds. Uh, all of the exchanges happening directly peer to peer. So there's arguments that, you know, some of the old definitions of these businesses or business models don't apply. Um, we're taking a conservative approach and trying to figure out uh, what we want to introduce to the platform that makes it makes us feel comfortable with you know any risk, knowing that these things are still being worked out. Um, the second piece, though, which I think is more important, is, is we're really focused on what do consumers want and what are we able to give them given the capabilities of the technology today. And we think that in order to give a quality product that really delivers on that primary benefit that we see, which is that non-custodial nature, there is a need to be aware of regulation. And it's not an alternative system that we're creating, at least not yet. Um, now, there may be a time in the future that it becomes possible to do so. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see what that future looks like, um, you know, from one of the things that I uh, I think has been hugely important to Bitcoin success is the anonymous nature of the creator. Um, I think that has been not only helpful from you know any sort of regulatory challenges that the individual could come uh, you know come under, uh, but also in terms of if people are looking at like which decentralized system to join, you know the one that doesn't have someone out there pushing their quote unquote their agenda and feels more decentralized and organic. Um, is very compelling. So I know there's a kind of a lot of ideas there uh, that I kind of threw out. But, you know, to summarize, I think we are looking to be 
regulatory compliant you know, and understand what applies to our business because we think that's the way we build the most valuable business that delivers on this primary benefit of smart contract smart contract based trading which is the non custodial or choice of custodian i i like the framework that that you're talking about this with just in terms of you know you're choosing what to decentralize you're talking about you know this pareto rule of 80/20 figuring out that non custodial nature of an exchange is sort of where differentiating has the most value for the end user and it, it is very much within the ethos right of the cryptocurrency space and as as you mentioned with the proof of keys event you know that is ultimately what people care about is, is this notion of control control of your own financial freedom control of your funds it seems like it's compatible with all of that where where we run into you know that gray area it's not just like you know legal gray areas i i know that you're trying to be very like legally cautious the gray area is more in terms of you know how we're using terms within the blockchain decentralization crypto space you know and, and how how we just throw around this term decentralized with really not much understanding of how the other person hearing us use that term is going to interpret it because as i said before the way you're expressing it to me is as the best of both worlds and as somebody who's you know a former trader and who understands the design of the product and the choices you've made it does seem like the best of both worlds to somebody who's more of an absolutist it almost seems like the worst of both worlds because you've got centralized elements to a nominally decentralized product uh and you haven't achieved you know the purity of decentralization that that the user would uh somehow be experiencing maybe on something that was like closer in design to ether delta where really it was just you know interacting with uh with smart contracts with a ux slapped on it uh so you know what what's your response to people who take this more absolutist pure pure view of of decentralization it, are they entirely wrong to be thinking that way is there truth to what they're thinking uh just what what do you do when people push back like that yeah, so we freely admit that you know we are choosing to centralize certain elements because of a conscious trade off right um we think that in in some ways the uh adoption and growth that we've been able to achieve is a reflection of the market agreeing with that decision that the thing that's most important to them is this custody element and they're willing to you know sacrifice on some of these other components. And, and and you're absolutely right. I think we need to be more precise with our language around decentralization. And if you say it's decentralized, say exactly what is decentralized, or even one step better, say what properties through the use of a decentralized network are you providing or, or what attributes does your product have? And so to, to apply it to IDEX, um, you know, the infrastructure is not decentralized. We have some of it running on the blockchain, but the majority of it's in an AWS instance that we control. Uh, the team um, and the developer, you know, community or the, the people contributing to the development of this product is not decentralized. It's it's a company that's behind it. Um, but the custody and the smart contract is decentralized. It's run on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, I would argue that no, at least in, to my knowledge, no exchange to date is truly decentralized because one element that has not been decentralized is the team and the people that are actually writing the code and like actually creating this product. Um, from, from what I can tell, every single one of them has, uh, you know, people behind it, lead developers, a Twitter account, things that are centralized to communicate what they're trying to build there. So 
but then the second question becomes, um, you know, what is really the goal here? Is decentralization this panacea or is it actually something that's a tool to be used selectively to solve certain problems? And and I'm blanking on the name, but there was a great Twitter thread. There was a, an article about a month ago talking about 43 pilot blockchain projects and zero of them moved forward. Um, and people were drawing various conclusions from it. Uh, you know, I think I'm not going to comment on the article itself, but rather there was a commentary around it talking about the really the goals of decentralization and what value does it bring? And, and I think there's this tendency in the space to think that decentralization uh, would be the best possible way to structure things if it weren't for, you know, kind of if you if you put on a uh, kind of a, a, a cynical perspective, if it weren't for you know nefarious corporations or governments or state actors that are trying to centralize things in order to maintain control. Um, when the reality is that there's there's some of that, but it, it's more often that centralization leads to benefits from an economic perspective and is actually how the free market will actually structure itself in the absence of regulation or you know a system that discourages that type of behavior. And, and one of the examples they gave was mining of gold versus mining of Bitcoin. And it was like early days, gold miners were sleuthing with a pan, you know, early days, Bitcoin miners were mining on their own laptop. Uh, then you had the introduction of ASIC miners and things that were more specified uh, or more, um, you know, kind of suited for that job and, you know, a similar development on the gold side. And then eventually it turned into, you know, these massive corporate strip mining gold mines and these massive warehouses full of mining equipment next to the most affordable source of electricity on the Bitcoin mining side, right? And, and in all those cases, the centralization of that operation was not a function of, you know, uh, a government like encouraging it. It was just economies of scale and benefits that come from some of that centralization or that that coordination that can occur when you centralize that actually made it the better choice for a rational economic actor. And so I think the, the question is really how can we apply this technology to help counteract some of the negative aspects of centralization, you know, things where those who uh, have kind of the first mover advantage or have a, a just because of historical precedent are in a position of power. How can we use this technology to prevent them from abusing it, but not necessarily to just prevent centralization altogether, but make it more transparent, more inclusive uh, and you know, bring about opportunity um, rather than just tear down all systems altogether? I think you've put that more aptly than almost anyone I've talked to on the topic, just in terms of how you frame what is the value of decentralization. It's mostly in preventing the worst aspects of centralization. It's it's not supposed to be an end goal in itself. The goal isn't anarchy or a stateless society necessarily, um, but in the ways in which those sort of centralized systems can corrupt we want more decentralized systems that are less corruptible. And I, I think most people, almost anyone, should agree that that is a valuable goal to have. And maybe just to pick up on what you were just saying about mining, for example, I've been told that, you know, proof of work is somehow like a more pure and decentralized version of uh, a consensus algorithm. And that proof of stake somehow is, is a rich get richer model. 
And from the way that you've described it, I, I don't really think that that's the case. It's more just sort of leaning into this idea that there's always going to be these aspects of economies of scale. There's always going to be these evolutions. And it's sort of an, un, an unavoidable feature of, of most networks and of most protocols. So to that end, you know, I, I know that what you guys are doing has an element of staking. Maybe talk about how you've considered staking as a mechanism for IDEX maybe how it works for IDEX and what you think the impact is on, on the decentralization of IDEX. Yeah. So I've heard that argument as well on proof of work versus proof of stake. And I don't, I honestly, I haven't thought deeply enough around it to have uh, kind of a, a, a full grasp or consideration. Cause certainly in both cases, you have an element of, um, you know, those who were there first, be it buying mining equipment early on or, uh, who accumulated this asset early on have an advantage. You know, they've set up an infrastructure or a system whereby they are more competitive than new entrants. But at the same time, if you come in with enough capital and with a good plan, you can too make yourself a, uh, a participant in that network that is reaping benefits of the system, right? Um, so I'm not really sure if one is inherently more equitable than the other. Um, so to, to your question, though, about our network, so we, as I mentioned, the vast majority of our infrastructure is outside of this smart contract and runs off-chain in an AWS instance. Um, however, there's because we use a smart contract for the core uh, trading functionality, there's other elements of the exchange that we can actually open up and make either more transparent or get more involvement from the community in terms of the operations outside of just the smart contract. And that's our plans with our staking network. So we have a token, the Aura token, that's associated with the platform. Users are given that token whenever they trade on IDEX. So we didn't do a token sale. We, we distribute it to those who trade on IDEX and, and bring liquidity and kind of trading activity to the platform. Um, and then users are able to stake that token and actually run a node that does some of the work that we are doing today as a centralized operator. And to give you a specific example, the first version of our staking network will come out next week, Jan January 8th. And it, yeah, this may not who, come out in time before yeah, exactly. that, but I'll, <laughs> but definitely something to look forward to. Yeah, good correction. So if you can go back in time, uh, it's coming out. <laughs> when we're recording this, it's coming out January eighth. So, um, the first version, because everything's in the smart contract, it's actually open and visible to those who are who who want to inspect it or look at the Ethereum network. However, when you connect to IDEX and come to the platform, that trade history, if you're looking at a particular market, is currently served up via our AWS, our, our centralized infrastructure. So the first step will be to allow node operators to stake the Aura token as a, a proof of stake form of collateral download the history from the blockchain directly of what's happened in the contract. And then when individuals connect to IDEX, they'll get the order book information from IDEX, but the trade history, what's displayed in the chart and what's displayed in the market history will come from another node in the network. Um, so this is kind of our first step towards removing ourselves from the centralized operations of the platform. So in this case, you no longer have to worry, like, is IDEX serving up trade history that doesn't reflect what's happening in the network itself? Um, we're using the openness of the smart contract to help bring others to get them involved in the operations of the exchange. So there's one element, which is kind of the transparency element. Um, 
two, you know, one of the things that I think is really exciting about decentralized economic systems or whatever you want to call them is, is this idea that you, through the creation of this scarce digital asset, you can have people all coordinate and move in the same direction without having to have like a typical, um, you know, kind of legal or corporate structure around it. So Bitcoin is a great example where those who mine Bitcoin, spend Bitcoin, own and hold Bitcoin all want Bitcoin to succeed and are going to, to work in jobs, careers, tell their friends, whatever, to spread that information and try to gain adoption. Um, similarly here, we want those who trade on IDEX to earn their Aura tokens for trading, stake that Aura and actually earn a percentage of the trade fees from the platform for that work that they're doing, and then tell others about it, uh, bring more trading to the platform, increase the liquidity. It serves as kind of an additional accelerant on the that ever important liquidity piece to get people to encourage them to trade more, to tell more uh, customers about it and really help grow this entity together. Yeah, here we are back in the the economist's lens of system design, platform design, everything else. And, you know, things like referrals have obviously been very valuable for the growth of other exchanges like Binance, you know. Yeah. Now, again, these are all user user level considerations. Obviously, 2019 going to be super exciting for IDEX and the launch of the staking network is very exciting. I want to ask you for, for our last question. You know, we, we've talked a lot about what is decentralization, what is a decentralized application, you know, the, you know, what aspects of an application can be decentralized and should be decentralized. Maybe make a quick prediction. You know, in 2019, obviously decentralized exchanges is something that we're anticipating growth of. What other kinds of decentralized applications, you know, of course, at least partially decentralized applications, right? pragmatically designed decentralized applications what kinds of applications are you thinking we're going to see either get more adoption or that people are going to start talking about a lot more so i do think something like augur is is poised for you know growth throughout 2019 and, and going forward you know they took um in some ways, a, the opposite view of some of the things that we did at IDEX, we focused on, you know, usability and and decentralizing the most important part. Um, in Augur's case, they're trying to create an open platform for wagering on anything. And, and maybe you could argue that they couldn't make some of those trade-offs without adding undue kind of burden on their users in order to participate. But I think over time, their UX will improve. There will be better ways of, of interacting with the system. And I think you'll see liquidity grow. You know, you'll get, you'll see more interest in that. Um, another one that I'm surprised we haven't seen much of yet, but I think we'll see, you know, potentially the first happenings in 2019 is some of the elements around on-chain identity. And it doesn't have to be super sophisticated. You know, one of the, the partners we've been talking with is um, they're introducing a, an identity token that essentially makes it easier to interact with entities that require some sort of knowledge of the customer. Um, so a lot of the applications that have been successful so far are finance-based and arguably have KYC or know your customer reporting requirements. One of the big challenges and one of the things we hear from customers is not that they're entirely opposed to having the service that they work with collect this information. You know, they understand that these rules and, and regulations exist. It's more around the security of that data once they turn it over. 
Um, the idea that my passport can be floating around on the internet because I've given it to 10 different entities at this point. One of them got hacked at some point, has lost that information, and now it's you know out there on the dark net. Um, so the idea that you could have a way to give your information to one entity, they control it safely and securely, and then you're given a representation of that that you can use at other services. And it's not that I know that Tor is uh, – you know, in Chicago and, and coming to use this platform, it's that I know that an individual who's in the U.S. and over 18 is using this platform and it's not someone in Iran on a sanctions list. Um, so it can give businesses the, the information they need to know that they're not breaking any laws without uh, being, I guess, either overly risky on the individual in terms of sending your inf private information everywhere, uh, as well as not divulging more than necessary for both sides to know that they're meeting their obligations and requirements as, as a business. Well, uh, as somebody who works at a, uh, at, at a project that's very much concentrated on decentralized solutions for the privacy of certain kinds of sensitive data, I think that you and I probably have similar thoughts on where that trend is going to go. I have some lovely articles on on-chain identity and reputation that I can send you that we've written. Awesome. Uh, so I'm excited for the same reasons for 2019. And obviously, you know, uh, as you're building this year, I'm going to be keeping an eye on what IDEX is doing. If any of our listeners want to keep an eye as well, is there anywhere they can learn more about the project or follow you guys on social? Yeah. So the website for the exchange is idex.market. Uh, the parent company is Aurora. Aurora Dallas. That's our Twitter handle. Uh, we're also active on Discord. Um, but yeah, if you come to the IDEX site, you'll see links to all those different social channels. And uh, yeah, pop in and say, hey, we'd love to chat. Awesome. Well, I'll add all of those links to the podcast description. People can follow up. People can start trading. People can kind of experience for themselves uh, IDEX and the choices that you've made for the benefit uh, of the user experience, including this non-custodial aspect. That's personally the most exciting thing for me. Um, along with how it might enable liquidity, you know, that still remains to be seen. I love liquidity. I hope you get tons. Uh, Alex, it was a pleasure talking to you, man. I appreciate all of the time and best of luck building this year. I'm excited to see where everything goes for you guys. Yeah. Thanks, Tor. I appreciate the opportunity to come on.